Good morning. Good to see you. You guys doing well? All right. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at the verse 28 verses, the first 28 verses this morning. The Spirit of God is such an important part of us learning the Word of God. So as we pray, let's welcome the Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives and tune our ears to what he would speak to us uh, through the word of God. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at the resurrection this morning. And we do ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us deeper into this truth, that we would understand that you, Jesus, are alive and what that means for our lives, that you're with us presently, that our future is secure. So God, would you provide encouragement this morning? May we be encouraged in the power of the resurrection. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The most important moment in human history has to be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of history is changed when Christ rose from the dead. All of scripture is leading up to this point where Jesus would die for our sins, be buried, and rise again. What does the resurrection mean? What does it mean for our lives personally? 1 Corinthians 15 really answers that for us. The church of Corinth is in disorder and disarray. There's sexual sin. There's the gifts being used in a way that's out of order and dysfunction, but also They are not believing correctly about the resurrection. And so Paul is clearing that up in this chapter of making sure that they're set on the essentials of the resurrection of Christ. We begin in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So first, the resurrection is salvation. Paul says, I I came to you and I preached the gospel. I declared the good news to you. You received it, you believed it, and the result was that you were saved, that you were the child of God. Because Jesus died for our sins, because he rose again, when we repent and believe, the result is forgiveness of sins. The result is salvation. And Paul encourages the church of Corinth is you need to continue to stand in the gospel. You need to continue to believe the gospel. Don't move away from the gospel. It's always concerning to me in talking with someone where they say, well, I used to believe that Jesus died for my sins. I used to believe that he rose again, but I don't necessarily believe that right now. And I say, well, what I'm really concerned about is right now. I'm really concerned that right now you believe that Jesus is God, that he died for you and that he rose again. And salvation's not based on our performance, thankfully, but there is that importance to continue to believe in the gospel, to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the world, our flesh, is always going to try to move us away from the cross and move us deeper into religion and to rules, and trusting in our own performance. And there's this exhortation where Paul says, make sure you're standing in the gospel, unless you believed in vain. We're looking for something to stand upon right now in these uncertain times. Where's our security? Where's our comfort? Where's our hope for the future? And church, it's always been the gospel. It's always been the gospel that we should be standing in. That is our firm foundation. 
But in difficult times, it reminds us all the more the certainty of the gospel, that Christ's finished work on the cross, his resurrection is, is unchanging. In changing times, Christ is unchanging, and we're able to stand in the gospel. We're able to take our feet and put them deep into the gospel, our hearts and our lives, and say, I know that I know that I'm loved by God. I know that Christ is risen from the dead. I know that he's present in my life. I know that I have eternal hope and eternal salvation. So the resurrection is salvation. The gospel is what we stand in. In these next few verses, God defines the gospel for us. Have you ever wondered, what's the definition of the gospel? If I were to share the gospel with someone else, would I know what to share? Here it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I'd also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Paul says, I shared what I received. The gospel, the good news, had impacted my life. I'd received the forgiveness of sins, and now I'm able to share that with others. Don't make it complicated. Share your testimony. Share God's story in your life of how you came to know Christ as your Savior, how you received the gospel. Paul shares his testimony three times in the book of Acts. I think if we spent time with Paul, he would often share his testimony. As we've received the gospel, then we're able to share and deliver it. So here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. It was in the heart and mind of God, the Father, to send his son as savior of the world to die for our sins. Let's for a moment just try to sit and enjoy and meditate on the redemptive plan of God, the good news, the gospel. God, when he created Adam and Eve, he knows all things. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that they would blow it there in the Garden of Eden. He knew that Cain would kill Abel. This first family would be so flawed with sin. And because Adam sins, then we're born with a sinful nature. He knew that, that we would sin. He also knew his plan to send his son, to send his son in human flesh to suffer and to die upon the cross, to pay the price for our sin, where we've been disobedient to God, where we've missed the mark. The law shows us what the standard would be if we were to try to have a relationship with God based on our own merit and our own works. And throughout the Old Testament, God is pointing to, he's foreshadowing this moment where Jesus would die upon the cross. We find Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac is the only begotten son, the promised son. And Abraham's told to sacrifice his son. That's pointing ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. We have the Passover when the children of Israel got delivered out of bondage in Egypt. It was a lamb, an innocent lamb that was killed and the blood of the lamb placed upon the doorposts of their homes, and then judgment passed over. A beautiful picture of the gospel, Jesus the spotless lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How many thousands upon thousands of lambs had been sacrificed under the Old Testament law that was pointing to Jesus paying the price for our sins? Psalms 22 this amazing predictive prophecy of Christ's suffering. Go, go read it and go, wow, 
in the heart of the psalmist was the suffering of, of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 points to the sufferings of Christ in an incredible way. It was according to the scriptures. It was according to God's plan all along that Jesus would die for our sins, that his death would then lead to resurrection. He would be buried and rise again three days later, conquering sin and death, where sin is buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. So where is the resurrection in the Old Testament scriptures? Well, we have Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, three nights. Jesus was in the belly of the earth, buried three days, three nights. And Jesus said the sign of Jonah pointed to his resurrection. In Psalm 16, it says that the Holy One will not see corruption. Wasn't speaking of David. David wasn't holy, man after God's own heart, but not holy. And his body did decay. It's speaking of Jesus, that Jesus' body wouldn't decay and be resurrected unto eternal life. It's according to the scriptures, both the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, which results in our salvation. That's the gospel, church. That's what we stand in. That's what we believe. And remember, when we're sharing the gospel, it's good news, right? Sometimes when we share the gospel, we're like, hey, this is the worst ever. You know, and it's good news. We are sinners that God loves, that Jesus paid the price for our sin. As we turn from our sin, repent, and believe, we're saved for everlasting life. We go on into verse 5. And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Cephas is Peter. Why the emphasis upon Peter, then upon the twelve? Because Peter had blown it. Peter in his pride said, even if these deny you, I will never deny you. He did what he never thought he would do. At the trial of Christ, he denied the Lord three times. He cursed and said he never knew the Lord. When that angel reveals the resurrection, there's this message that is given. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter needed to hear that Christ was risen because the resurrection of Christ would result in the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus makes a special appointment to meet with Peter in John chapter 21 to restore him on the Sea of Galilee, cooks breakfast for him. The resurrection of Christ would mean everything to Peter. On Wednesday nights, we're studying First and Second Peter. And Peter says he has a living hope because Christ is alive. Some more accounts of Christ appearing to people in his resurrection. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So the resurrection is verifiable. The resurrection is salvation, but the resurrection is verifiable. 500 people saw the resurrected Savior. Now, we don't have that documented in any other place other than here. What was it like? Was it some worship gathering, worship service, and and Jesus reveals himself in his resurrected state? But it was known to Paul in the early church that there's 500 that saw Christ, the risen Savior, before he ascended. Also, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, a strong leader in the book of Acts, 
Christ revealed himself to, to James. Then last of all, Paul. Paul's on the road to Damascus, traveling into Syria to arrest and persecute Christians, and God calls him by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he has a vision of Christ. And he says, I have seen the resurrected Savior, and I was an apostle born out of due season. I'm not like the rest of the apostles who walked and talked and lived with the Lord for three years. As we look at the resurrection of Christ, is it verifiable? When we look at other events in history and the documentation that goes into those accounts that that took place, we oftentimes accept that. We go, okay, there's historical evidence for George Washington. There's historical evidence for for Herod. Well, I've got to tell you, there's historical evidence for Jesus, that he walked the earth. It's recorded for us. It's, It's documented that he died, that he rose again. And if you're examining the claims of Christ, you're looking at, is the tomb really empty? I would encourage you to do your research. I would encourage you to ask the questions, to to wrestle with it. Because if Christ is risen and it's verifiable, then you've got a decision to make. You've got to decide, am I going to accept or reject the death and burial and the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ? In verse 9, Paul's now sharing his response to the resurrection. For I am the least of the apostles, whom not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's journey and how he viewed himself is he writes, I'm the least of the apostles. Then he writes, I'm the least of saints. Then he writes, I'm the, the chief of sinners. What's going on with Paul? Was he living a more sinful life the longer he walked with Christ? No. The closer he got to Christ, the more he was aware of his own sinfulness and the amazingness of God's grace. He didn't walk around in condemnation. He rejoiced in God's love, but he realized, man, the closer I get to the light, the more flawed and broken that I realize that that I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. By the grace of God, I am what I am. The resurrection is grace. Grace, unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Here, we deserve God's judgment and God gives us his grace in his son, which is most valued. His only begotten son. And Paul experienced that grace to save him. Here he was so radically opposed to Christ. He hated Christ. He hated Christ's followers. But yet, in God's grace, he was saved. In God's grace, he came to know Christ as his Savior. And he responds to that grace. He responds to that grace and says, I've labored because God has saved me, because God has been gracious to me. Isn't grace such a powerful agent? Grace moves our hearts. It wins our hearts in a way that the law never could. In eighth grade, we had two homeroom teachers. It was the last period of the day. It was kind of a study hall to end out the day. And one was Mr. Reed, and the other was Mr. Rail. And you could think of them as law and grace. Mr. Rail lived up to his name. He would rail on you. He was law. He had his rules and everything in order. And when you were sitting in his 
homeroom class, you just wanted to rebel. It just, everything inside of you is like, man, I just don't like all the rules and the structure and how strict it all this is. Now, now, was he wrong? No, he was, he's doing his job and he was a good guy. And, but that was, that was his personality, was, was those rules. And then right across the hall was Mr. Reed. And Mr. Reed was Mr. Grace. And he would greet you as you come in with warmth and a smile. And he had more of an attitude of, guys, if you want to waste your time, it's your time to waste. If you want to save your homework till you get home later today, uh, that's up to you. But I'd encourage you to use the time. He had this standing rule that you could grab a piece of paper out of your notebook and try to shoot it into the wastebasket. The only thing was, if you missed, you had to clean his room. So what eighth grade boy could resist that? Especially me, I love basketball, so I, I would take my chances and ended up having to clean his, his room. But I did more homework in Mr. Reed's room than Mr. Rail's room. Because grace impacted me, right? And the grace of God should, should impact us. There's two people that I've known from Rocky Mountain Calvary that have gotten heart transplants. And to watch that process take place in their lives where their health is failing and they're dying. You can visibly see it because their, their heart is not working. They've only got so much time and they're on the list for a heart transplant. You don't know when the phone call is going to come. And then it comes, and they're rushed up to Denver for surgery. Someone has passed away. That heart has gone from their body into the recipient of my friends here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, and their life is saved. What if you got a heart transplant, and you got to sit down with the family of the person that decided to be a donor? How would you approach that meeting You've got the heart of someone's daughter. You've got the heart of someone's son. You've got the heart of someone's spouse. <clears throat> Utmost appreciation. Thank you so much. The decision that you made as a family, the decision your daughter made, your son made, your husband made to, to be a donor saved my life. I wouldn't be here. I am so thankful. And as we have the grace of God come into our lives for salvation, that Jesus loved us enough, the Father loved us enough to go to the cross and die for our sins so that we could be saved, man, we should respond to Christ and say, I want to be a living sacrifice. I am so thankful for what you've done. I want to labor now in your kingdom. I want to serve now in your kingdom. Not this attitude that goes, thanks, bro, see you later. Thanks for the sacrifice. Peace out. See you in heaven, right? I'm sure glad I got some fire insurance. That's not an understanding of grace. Grace moves us to say, man, I want to be in relationship with you. You've made this amazing sacrifice, not legalism, but a true love relationship. Notice that it's not a departure of grace because Paul says, but I labored more abundant than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So the grace that saves us also empowers us for service. It's the same everlasting love of God. It's the same mercy of God. It's the same gifts that we don't deserve where he puts grace in our lives so we have the strength and the wisdom to be able to stir, serve his grace to keep us away from sin. It's estimated that Paul traveled 5,580 miles on foot in his missionary journeys. 
that he sailed 6,770 miles by sea. He went without food. He was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. He made those sacrifices because the grace of God had impacted him and was living inside of him. In verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is where the church of Corinth went wrong is for believers, they're saying there's no resurrection of the dead. So Paul's saying, well, how could this be if we preach that Jesus has been raised from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So think about this for just a moment. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our preaching, our declaring of the gospel is absolute emptiness. Our faith is, is empty. There's no substance. There's no validity to it. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So if Christ isn't risen, Paul's a false teacher. He's a heretic. He's, he's a false witness. And our faith is futile. Futile means incapable of producing any results. However, if Christ is risen, then the opposite of this is true. Our faith is full. Our preaching is full. Our faith is not futile. Paul is not a false witness. In verse 18, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. How important is the resurrection? The resurrection is essential. Absolutely essential. That's a buzzword right now. Essential, non-essential, what's essential, what's not essential. I can tell you one thing for sure from the scriptures that is absolutely essential, and that's Christ's resurrection from the dead. He is risen from the dead. And because of that, because Christ is risen from the dead, then we have this confidence that we too are going to be risen from the dead. So for the church of Corinth to reject that believers are going to be risen from the dead, in essence, they're rejecting the resurrection of Christ and they're rejecting their future hope. And Paul says, if believers are not resurrected unto everlasting life, then we are to be pitied. We're to be pitied. Which is, is interesting because Christ does bring abundant life to us in this life. Not an easy life. He doesn't promise an easy life. In fact, he promised suffering. And in following him, there, there would be suffering. But Christ does bring love and joy and peace into our lives. There's tremendous communion with Christ. I bet you would agree that your present life is better because of Christ. Not easier, but there's joy and peace and love in your life presently that is so wonderful. But Paul says, if that's all there was, and there wasn't this promise of eternal life, then unbelievers should look at us with pity and go, those guys are so foolish, right? But again, the opposite of this is true. Since Christ rose from the dead and we 
are going to rise from the dead and we have that eternal hope, then we shouldn't be pitied. People should look at us and go, they've got true understanding because they know that they have everlasting life. This is how important the resurrection of, of Jesus is. Sometimes you might enter into these conversations or hear these conversations, you know, what are the essentials of Christianity? What are the, the essentials of the scriptures? And we can disagree in the non-essentials, but we have to have unity in, in the essentials. There's nothing more essential than the crucifixion, burial, resurrection of Christ, how we're saved. We can never lose sight of that. We always got to make sure that there's crystal clear understanding about that. When it comes to the rapture of the church, when Jesus promises to take the church up to be with him, there's pre-tribulation rapture view, which is God raptures us before the tribulation. There's mid-trib, there's post-trib. There's all these different views on the timing of, of the rapture. I personally believe in a pre-trib rapture. But guess what? That's not essential for salvation. That's not part of, of the gospel, right? And so there can be this place to look at scripture and talk about and, and debate what we think is, is going to take place. But when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, that is absolutely essential. That's something there has to be complete agreement in. This last section shows that the resurrection is first fruits, that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When you think of first fruits, it means there's more fruit to come. If you have some squash or zucchini in your garden and you get those first few, there's more to come. Get a few tomatoes, there, there's more to come. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that as he rose from the grave, received his glorified body, we too are going to rise from the grave, and we'll study this more in the second half of 1 Corinthians 15, and God is going to give us a glorified physical body. We know Jesus had a physical resurrected body. It wasn't this ghost-like resurrected body. The disciples were able to touch him and be able to examine his, his wounds, his scars from the crucifixion. We see Jesus eating several times in his resurrected state. Revelation prophesies the marriage feast of the Lamb. Jesus is cooking inviting his bride to the table. That's something to look forward to. Can you imagine the food in heaven? You're not going to have to count your calories or your carbs. If you have food allergies, no more, right? You're in this glorified, resurrected state where there's no sin. It will never sin in this glorified body. And we have great hope and we look forward to the resurrection of believers for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. He sins, and that results, that impacts us. We all died in Adam. We were all born with a sinful nature. You know, if you're a brand new parent and you're holding your infant, I, I remember that moment very well, and you're looking at your child just going, I don't, I'm not really sure that they have a sinful nature. They're, they're just so sweet, you know? This innocent, 
beautiful little baby, and then just give it a little bit of time. Just give it a little bit of time. And you'll discover, oh yeah, this child is amazing and does have a sinful nature just like me. You look at an 18-month-old, a 24-month-old, 36 months, three years, and everybody goes to the terrible twos. Come on, they're just warming up at two. <laughs> they're, they're building their arsenal for three, right? And we all did it to our parents. We inherited a sin nature from, from Adam. But even more so, refers to the last Adam. And notice that it emphasizes the humanity of Christ. That Jesus is God, but he's also man by man. Also came the resurrection of the dead, the God-man. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he surrendered himself to the cross. Where he says, not my will, but your will be done. Garden of Eden was the result of sin. Garden of Gethsemane results in redemption. And the last Adam paid the price for us to where we could experience forgiveness and ultimately resurrection unto eternal life, to be made alive. Verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, his second coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts the end to all rule and all authority and power. The second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus is literally going to land upon the Mount of Olives and he's going to put to end all rule of man. Praise the Lord. (laughs) That's what this is all leading to. This human experience where we're trying government and we're trying to rule and we're trying to reign. Ultimately, it comes to where Christ lands. He returns and he rules and he reigns and he puts an end to all of it. And how our hearts long for that. And how we crave for the rule of Christ. And then he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. The first coming, Jesus comes as a suffering servant. The second coming is a conquering king where he makes all things right and puts all things under his authority. Verse 25, for he must reign till he's put all things under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. All things, all other authority is going to be placed under the feet of Jesus and death is going to be put under the feet of Jesus. We know that Jesus has defeated death, but we haven't experienced it yet. We haven't experienced it yet. What we'll find is the second coming of Christ is that when Christ returns, the trumpet is blown and the dead in Christ rise first. That's when believers receive their resurrected body. So we're left with this question, what's the state of believers now in heaven? Because we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, technically, they haven't received their glorified body yet. Their spirit is with the Lord, but they haven't received their, their resurrected body. But remember, in heaven, I don't think time's nearly as relevant. We don't really know what time is going to be like for eternity But we do have this illustration that a thousand years to us is like a day to the Lord. So maybe they're waiting for a few moments to receive their their glorified body. I picture time in heaven to be much more like an eternal now. But the last thing that's going to be put under the feet of Jesus is death. Isn't death brutal? It's brutal. It's brutal to see a child buried by their parents. It's brutal to see a, a spouse 
bury their, their loved one from our perspective prematurely. But death doesn't have the final word. Christ has the final word. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So powerful. Our resurrected Savior returning putting all things under his feet and he presents it to the Father because he's subject to the Father. There's this fulfillment of God being all in all. The resurrection is the first fruits. We have this confidence that we too are gonna rise unto eternal life. The resurrection is salvation, it's verifiable, is grace essential, is first fruits. I desire in just the next couple of moments to try to make the resurrection of Christ a little bit more personal. Turn with me to John 19. We're going to finish up in, in John 19 and look at Mary Magdalene. John 20, excuse me. John 20, verse 11. John 20, verse 11. Mary had a crazy past. She was possessed with seven demons. I believe that the scripture teaches you open yourself up to darkness. I think she opened herself up to darkness. She was exposed to it. She chose it. These demons come and live inside of her. Jesus cast out those demons. And Mary was a radical follower of Jesus. You see her at the crucifixion of Christ. You see her coming to the tomb early in the morning to wanting to give Christ a proper burial. Jesus was everything to her. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Mary was ready to do the first deadlift in human history. Christ's dead body. She's like, I, I don't even care. This dead weight. In love, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift his body and return him to his tomb, return him to his proper burial place. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said, do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to my father, but go to my brethren And say to them, I'm ascending to my father, catch this, and your father, that's the work of the gospel. And to my God, catch this, and your God, that's the work of the gospel. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Believer, this is the most difficult your life is ever going to get. This life 
is as challenging as it's going to get. It's going to end into everlasting life. You are going to enter into the resurrection of Christ and receive a glorified body and forever be with the Lord. During this life, our resurrected Savior, he knows you by name. He knew Mary by name, called her by name, and he knows you by name. He knows your joys this morning. He knows your sorrows. He knows your sin, your shortcomings. He knows you, and he calls you by name. Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's present with us. And as we experience and enjoy the reality of Christ's resurrection, we should go and tell. We should share this good news. When you read the accounts of Jesus revealing himself in his resurrected state, he always encourages the disciples to go and share this good news. It's a little bit selfish to keep good news to yourself. (laughs) It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be declared. And for those of you that are wrestling this morning with making a decision to receive Christ as your Savior, consider the gospel. Consider the good news. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But Jesus died for your sins. He rose again. And you have the opportunity to turn from sin and believe. To believe that Jesus is God. That he died for you and rose again. The gospel is sitting in your account, if you would. But you have to use it, appropriate it through faith. What if someone came up to you and said, hey, I just put $10,000 in your bank account. You're like, no. No, you didn't. Shut up. You did not. I don't believe you. And you never even went and checked. You never accessed that money. You fool. That was $10,000, right? Just put into to your account. How much more so God has said, look, here's my offer, but you've got to receive it through faith. So as we end this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come down here in the front. We're not going to sign you up for a church, but give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior. You know if you've received Christ or not. Those that are joining us online, if you'd like to trust Christ for salvation, please go to the chats, the comments, pray right where you're at, to turn, to believe the gospel, and to be saved. It's the most important decision that you'll make in your life. It determines whether you go to heaven or hell, whether you choose to accept or reject Christ as your Savior. Let's stand together. Let's pray these things in. Jesus, we thank you that you're alive, that you're alive above our sin, you're alive above our circumstances, that you promised eternal hope, eternal life to us, that this life is as difficult that it's going to get for us as believers. Would you remind us of the power of the gospel to those that don't know you? Lord, would you give us a heart to, to love unbelievers, to enter into their life, and to share Jesus with them? Lord, for those that don't know you, we pray that you would talk to them, that you would speak to them, that you would communicate your love to them in a way that only you can. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.